Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. House Republicans grilled the EPA administrator and introduced a bill to strip the agency of its authority to regulate greenhouse gases. The very premise of this legislation is that the science is a hoax. In fact, we started off the hearing with Senator Inhofe, who told us he's writing a book and he's going to call it hoax. Coming up, the laws of Congress versus the laws of nature. Also, part one in our special series, Toxic Tide, discovering the health effects of the Deepwater disaster. I worked 60 days on the front line for BP out here. I'm sick today. Nobody wants to take care of me. We are very, very ill. And there's a very good chance now that I won't get to see my grandbabies. Many Gulf residents are now ill and blame the BP oil spill for their symptoms. Those stories just ahead on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Tune into a daytime soap opera and you get melodrama, accusations, and denials. But if you sat through a recent day-long congressional hearing, you'd get that and more. The hearing held by the Republican-controlled House Energy and Power Subcommittee featured EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson as the star witness. She was called to defend her agency's plans to regulate greenhouse gases. Four years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the EPA has the authority under the Clean Air Act to reduce climate-changing emissions. But now House Republicans have introduced a bill that would prevent the agency from taking action. Democrat Henry Waxman, the ranking minority member on the committee, had a front-row seat at the dramatic hearing. The very premise of this legislation is that the science is a hoax. In fact, we started off the hearing with Senator Inhofe, who told us he's writing a book and he's going to call it hoax because he thinks that the work of the National Academy of Sciences and all the scientific agencies that have been looking at the carbon problem uh, are perpetrating a hoax on the American people. And it's amazing to me that the idea of science should be partisan. Well, Republican Congressman John Shimkus of Illinois said in his uh, remarks, he says, this is about jobs. This isn't about science. If we would have done something to reduce the carbon emissions, as we had proposed last year, we would have created millions of new jobs. We would be way ahead of the other countries in the world that are further along than we are in producing ways to deliver energy without the pollution from carbon. And The main thrust of the proposals by EPA is to require reductions in emissions through efficiency. And any time industry becomes more efficient, it becomes more competitive and would produce more jobs. So I think uh, that a lot of the Republicans, they think they're doing these industries a favor by trying to keep the status quo and stop anything from happening. I think they're doing a disservice to the American people who want jobs, cheaper energy, less dependent on foreign oil, and an environment that's going to be protected, not thrown into disregard. Well, you obviously see it much different than uh, Republican Representative Joe Barton, who in his opening remarks said, quote, 
The EPA and the Obama administration have decided that they want to put the American economy in a straitjacket, costing us millions of jobs and billions of dollars a year. Well, I think that's an astonishing statement. Uh, I guess I have to look back at 36 years in the Congress. And from the first day I arrived here in 1975, I sat through hearings on the Clean Air Act where industry after industry testified that they thought any environmental laws would hurt them and would hurt our economy and cost us jobs. And the history of the Clean Air Act since 1970, and especially since 1990, amendments to it, have been exactly the opposite. Our businesses have been more competitive, our environment has been cleaner, and we've had uh, the economy grow and more jobs as well, and sometimes as a result. This hearing was about a, a Republican-introduced measure called the Energy Tax Prevention Act. And basically, this would uh, stop the EPA from regulating greenhouse gases. Well, they, the title is the first misleading aspect of the uh, legislation because EPA cannot impose a tax. They uh, use that word tax because they know people don't like taxes. But when you look at what they're trying to do, they didn't want to pass the legislation to deal with global warming, climate change. They fought against that in the last year. And now uh, that the EPA is acting under the existing law, as required by the, a 5-4 to four Supreme Court decision in interpreting the law, they want to stop the EPA from acting. And they not only want to do that, they want to stop California and other states from tightening down on auto emissions in the future. In effect, they want nothing to be done. This is a very extreme, very extreme measure. And I can't imagine that it'll get through all the way to the president. If it got that far, he wouldn't veto it. Before the hearing, you sent a letter to the chairman of the full committee, Fred Upton. Yes. That was from Steve Johnson, who was the EPA administrator under the George W. Bush administration. And he says in that letter that um, the EPA should regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Yes. And he wrote to the president of the United States saying that the science requires them to make this finding and to do the regulations under the Clean Air Act. So he wanted to do something, and he felt he had to do something because the science required it. Now the Republicans are saying that the science is a hoax and that the EPA shouldn't have the ability to regulate, even though the court has said that they must. And uh, what we wanted to point out was even in the Bush administration, the head of the EPA, the administrator, Stephen Johnson, came to the same conclusions as Lisa Jackson, the existing administrator at EPA. Uh, So this is not a partisan conclusion, although Mr. Johnson certainly got the signal from the Bush White House that they didn't want him to go forward, so he didn't move any more than just simply indicate that the White House, that he was going to reach an endangerment finding. So um, we pointed that out. I think it's important for the American people to know this is not some Democratic Party Obama administration plot. It's what the science and it's what the law requires. They can maybe uh, change the law if the Republicans want to, but they can't amend the laws of nature, and they can't uh, decide that science doesn't count and not have uh, the impact that we know is going to continue with all the accumulation of the carbon emissions in our atmosphere. 
Henry Waxman is a Democrat from California and the ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Well, while Congress debates the laws of man, climate scientists continue to investigate the laws of nature. In the Amazon forest, researchers are trying to calculate the damage from two severe droughts. In recent years, there's been a distinct lack of rain in the Amazon rainforest. The drought of the century is what they called the first in 2005, but the second, just five years later, was even worse. The forest is drying and the trees are dying, destroying the vast region's ability to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. University of Leeds researcher Oliver Phillips says instead of acting as a carbon sink, the Amazon forest is becoming a huge source of climate-changing gases. In 2005, we, we think the Amazon lost about 1 billion tons of carbon. What droughts do is they, they've killed trees as all that dead wood decays that gets converted into carbon dioxide, and that's what then goes to the atmosphere. So so if you like, what happened, the 2005 drought did was actually, it stopped the sink, it flipped it the other way to a source, and it increased the magnitude by two. So (laughs) it went from a moderate sink to a strong source as a result of 2005. Whoa. Yeah, well, yeah, so so it it was a big impact. A billion metric tons is close to the emissions of all the cars on Earth at the moment. In other words, the amount of CO2 that they're emitting was actually a little bit less than the impact of the 2005 drought. So the question now after the 2010 drought, which was bigger in climatological terms than 2005, is did that also kill trees? And we suspect, based on our 2005 analysis, that 2010 will have killed even more trees and have caused even more carbon to be emitted to the atmosphere. Uh, Really, what we're looking at here is kind of a giant feedback loop. The more drought we have, the more trees die, which will lead to more drought. Well, there's lots of possible um, interactions in the system. Now, now one of them is the system gets drier, then uh, growth may decline and, and the death of trees may accelerate, so you get release of carbon to the air. And that, in turn, accelerates climate change. And we expect that the changing climate this century will act to strengthen the dry season, particularly across the southern Amazon. So the kind of droughts we're seeing now, they are consistent with a global climate change picture. Do these intense uh, droughts, do they affect the composition of the forest, the types of trees that uh, survive? Last time in 2005, we did find that the drought was actually killing some kinds of trees more than others. In some of our plots, it was the palms which were really suffering. And that kind of makes sense in ecological terms because these are species which are found mostly in the western wet part of the Amazon and tend to drop out in the drier areas. So, you know, the implication is if you've got, if we have several of these droughts, one after the other, that would drive some change in the composition, if you like, the biodiversity of the system. And, of course, you know, naturally we would expect that those kinds of trees which are more resilient to drought uh, may turn out to be the winners uh, if this process continues. But those, uh, those trees which you call winners, uh, are they good at absorbing carbon, lots of carbon, or are the losers the ones that absorb carbon? On average, the trees in the drier part of the Amazon are a little bit shorter than in the wetter part. So we expect if the forest dries that, if you like, the average height of the tree 
will start to decline. Uh, it'll change in, in form in the kinds of species, and, and it'll, some carbon will be lost. The last sentence of your study in science uh, really sent shivers up my spine. And I'm going to quote. It says, If drought events continue, the era of intact Amazon forests buffering the increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide may have passed. In other words, if we have more droughts, then the Amazon's ability to absorb more carbon dioxide is, is over. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. I mean, and when you think about the implications of, of that, it's, it's, it's really, the Earth is, is a, you know, it's a big place, obviously, and it's not just the Amazon which is, which is important in like, affecting the rate in which CO2 is increasing in the atmosphere. There are other big carbon sinks, too. Um, there's the African forest, which is also large, um, there are forests in the temperate zone in in the u s and in Europe. there are big forest areas which are probably currently absorbing carbon and If you add up all those forest areas around the world, they provide us with, with a hell of a service so far in slowing down the rate in which c o two is accumulating in the atmosphere. The scenario for this century now is what 's going to happen to those carbon sinks if those sinks slow down and stop then we could emit that much less carbon dioxide um, if we want to keep our Earth a, a safe place to live. Oliver Phillips is a professor of geography at the University of Leeds in the UK and co-author of the study, The 2010 Amazon Drought in Science Magazine. Just ahead, toxic time discovering the health effects of the deep water disaster. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's been more than six months since BP finally capped its runaway oil well in the Gulf of Mexico. But now come reports of a wave of illnesses and puzzling symptoms from some residents along the Gulf Coast. Their blood contains high levels of chemicals found in oil and the dispersants that were used to clean up the mess. Many who are suffering say firmances and adequate treatment are hard to come by, and there's a growing sense of frustration with government agencies and the medical community. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has the first part of our special report, Toxic Tide, discovering the health effects of the deepwater disaster. Okay, questions and comments from the floor. When the National Oil Spill Commission presented its final report in New Orleans, commissioners expected to get an earful from rig workers and fishermen worried about their jobs. Instead, they heard speaker after speaker worried about something else, their health. I worked 60 days on the front line for BP out here. I'm sick today. Nobody wants to take care of me. The issue is ongoing. People are getting sick and and dying. I have seen small children with lesions all over their body. We are very, very ill. And there's a very good chance now that I won't get to see my grandbabies. Some had worked cleaning up the oil. Others lived in or had visited places where oil washed ashore. All complained of mysterious ailments that arose after the spill. Robin Young was one of those who spoke out. She manages vacation rental properties in Orange Beach, Alabama, where she's lived for 10 years. When the spill started, Young helped form a citizens group called Guardians of the Gulf. At first, the group was not focused on health issues. Then people, including Young, started getting sick headaches, I would get nauseous, and these are all things that I don't normally experience at all. I've always been very, very, very healthy. Then the coughing, you know, I coughed up so much nasty-looking mess. 
Young says symptoms started after she spent a day near the water in June, and she still hasn't fully recovered. She heard from others in her community and across the Gulf Coast with similar problems. We have way too many people that are sick with very odd symptoms that they have never experienced before in their life. So there's something going on, and it's all the way up and down the coast, and it seems to be in the predominant areas where the oil continues to come on shore. A number of people Young contacted sought treatment just across the state line in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, with Dr. Rodney Soto. Dr. Soto says he's seeing a lot of upper respiratory symptoms and severe rashes. Multiple lesions all over their bodies and bruising. I tell you, people are suffering a great degree. The stress levels through the roof. So we're barely scratching the surface in regards to what else we are going to see. And I don't think that the medical community is well prepared to handle this. Dr. Soto says the symptoms, patient histories, and in some cases, blood samples indicate these illnesses are likely due to chemical exposure from the spill. But back on the Alabama coast, there's skepticism about that. Tony Kennan is mayor of Orange Beach. I would not doubt that these people are ill, but I would say for them to adamantly say the oil spill made them ill, they're going to have to present evidence. Kennan says the city contracted an independent engineering firm to sample air, water, and soil. And he says local physicians have not reported any unusual number of health issues that might be oil-related. He says he wants to protect people's health and people's jobs. We're a tourism industry, and uh, I don't know if you can remember that old uh, scene in the movie Jaws where the mayor's standing on the beach saying, come on to the beach, there's no shark in the water, and <laughs> you look in the, in the water and there's blood everywhere. So uh, uh, you, don't, you don't want to be that guy. That's exactly right. So, you know, I want people to know that when I say we're healthy, the, the water and the beaches are fine, it's because we did... We did our homework. State health departments in Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, and Mississippi set up surveillance systems with emergency rooms and health clinics. There's little in that data to suggest a large number of spill-related illness. But Dr. Rodney Soto says chemical exposure cases can fall through the cracks if physicians are not trained to detect them because the symptoms mimic other illnesses. The diagnoses in their records are going to be cold, flu, weakness, immune problem, whatever that they want to call it. And so the, the government agencies aren't going to pick up on anything because there is no reports or there's no documentation in the records. Dr. Soto suspects many people who lack health insurance are trying to treat their own symptoms with over-the-counter medicines. And worse, Dr. Soto says some physicians might be willfully turning a blind eye. And unfortunately, I'm hearing a lot from patients that their doctors are turning them away. They for whatever reasons, don't want to get involved with uh, dealing with this connection of oil to illness, uh, whether it's litigations or whether it's BP, who knows what their motivations are. Somebody specifically told me, the doctor said, we don't want to see any patients who could potentially have symptoms of oil spill, period. Some of Dr. Soto's patients are having their blood samples analyzed for traces of volatile organic compounds that might indicate oil exposure. Robin Young had her blood tested. They found that I had um, ethylbenzene, um, isooctane, 2-butyrol, 3-butyrol. The hexane levels were over the top, so the lab even put a big H by it. And it was, uh, it was scary. It was depressing. And then I got mad. Young's group paid for more blood sampling. 
The Louisiana Environmental Action Network asked biochemist and MacArthur Grant winner Wilma Subra to analyze the results. The blood samples came from cleanup workers, crabbers, a diver who'd been in oiled water, and at least two children who live on the coast. All had reported recent health problems. Subra compared the levels of volatile organic compounds in those samples to a national database of VOCs in blood compiled by the National Center for Health Statistics. They're as much as five to ten times what you'd find in the normal population. And again, these are the chemicals that relate back to the chemicals in the BP crude and the dispersants. Benzene is a carcinogen and is linked to immune system problems and a host of illnesses. Ethylbenzene can cause dizziness and kidney damage. Xylene can cause headaches, rashes, and respiratory problems. But this blood sampling alone does not prove a connection between the illnesses and the oil. It's a small number of people, just a few dozen. Many of the chemicals rapidly break down and are hard to track. And other routes of exposure might be to blame. Benzene can come from pumping gasoline, breathing paint fumes, vehicle exhaust, or cigarette smoke. But Subra defends her findings and wants health officials to use her data to guide further study and treatment. I think it's demonstrating that the chemicals they are being exposed to are showing up in their blood. We've briefed the federal agencies on it, tried to get them interested. They're evaluating the results. And I think there's a lot of frustration in the community members across the coastal areas. They are really requesting answers. Solid answers will take time. There's little in the scientific literature on long-term health effects of oil spills. In March, the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences plans to start enrolling Gulf spill cleanup workers in a long-term health study. The principal investigator is Dale Sandler, chief of epidemiology at NIEHS. She hopes to track some 55,000 subjects for at least five years. This will be by far the largest study of individuals exposed during an oil spill disaster that's ever been conducted. So we have been moving heaven and earth to make this go quickly. Sandler's study has funding, thanks in part to BP. The study is a few months behind its original schedule, but researchers face another hurdle that may prove more difficult. Signing up tens of thousands of participants and getting people to accept results depends on credibility and trust. After the BP spill and Hurricane Katrina, trust is in low supply on the Gulf Coast. Here's how Orange Beach Mayor Tony Kennan sums up the attitude. The bottom line is very few people trust governmental agencies. Uh, They think there's this incestuous relationship between BP and the government, and I tend to agree with them. And even as Robin Young asks the government to help her community, the plea comes with a note of deep suspicion. I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, that's what I'm starting to feel like, because it's hard to believe that something like this is going on in the United States and no one's helping. Those hoping to find the Gulf spill's real impact will also have to find a way to bridge a gulf of mistrust. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young. Our special report, Toxic Tide, Discovering the Health Effects of the Deepwater Disaster, continues next week with Jeff's report on a key scientific finding in the Gulf's air and water. And that's where we found something very interesting. It was not the crude oil that was responsible for most of the volatile compounds we're seeing, but it was actually the dispersant. That's next week on Living on Earth. Just ahead, a story about mixing oil and water in the California desert. In that story, you'll hear a term not commonly used, acrefoot. 
For definition, we turn to the book Home Ground. It's an anthology of expressions that describe, explain, and illuminate our landscape. The editor is Barry Lopez. Acre Foot In a landscape where porcupines lead undisturbed lives, every attentive resident knows how far you mean when you say something is two porcupines away. It's twice the breadth of what one's come to know as a single porcupine range. Similarly, we learn to quickly locate a feature on the horizon if someone says, it's a thumbnail to the left of the highest peak there. Folk measurements like these, or the stone's throw, the day's ride, or the pace, though not precise, are accurate. The acre foot joins together two once imprecise folk measurements to create a term that apparently leaves nothing to interpretation. It's exactly 43,000 560 cubic feet of water, a single acre, one foot deep. Given the behavior of water, however, such a precision is rarely dead accurate, which accounts for the enduring wisdom behind the use of folk measurements. Nature writer Barry Lopez lives on the Mackenzie River in western Oregon. His definition of acrefoot is from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, which he edited with Deborah Gwatney. The movie There Will Be Blood is set in the desert scrubland of Southern California at the turn of the 19th-20th century. The story is fiction, but many of the events in this tale of family, greed, and oil are based on fact. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. Once petroleum did gush from wells in the desert sands of Southern California, but today what's left of the ocean of oil in some parts of this arid region is gooey crude. In places, it's so thick it has to be mined, thinned out with steam. Problem is, this is one of the most water-starved corners of the country. Reporter Jeremy Miller traveled to southwestern San Joaquin Valley. His article, The Colonization of Kern County, a story of oil and water, appears in the latest issue of Orion magazine. When you're driving around, there is oil literally bubbling up from the ground in places if you know where to look. It's typical kind of desert, arid, southwest San Joaquin Valley kind of area. Yeah, it's it's a landscape of oil for sure. And it's interesting because it butts up right against all of the big agricultural regions in the southern San Joaquin Valley. But the type of oil they're extracting now is not this gusher oil. It's, it's more of this thick, heavy stuff. It is, yes. One oil driller that I talked to there described it as the consistency of liver in a meat case. It's a very thick, gooey, molassesy kind of oil. And that's a result of the oil sitting in shallow deposits underground and being exposed to air and bacteria. And these bacteria like to chomp on the oil. And through that process, the oil gets broken down from the kind of the nice stuff that flows like syrup to this sort of semi-solid material. But to extract this type of oil, they have to use prodigious amounts of water in, in the form of steam. They do. Yeah, water was the key to unlocking the heavy oil deposits of Kern County. So they're taking this relatively clean water out of the California aqueduct and putting it through cogeneration plants, which create steam, and they pump it underground. 
and they used that steam to extract the oil. And since that method called steam flooding was pioneered back in the 1960s, most of the oil fields in that area have transferred over to this mode of oil production. So where are they getting all of this water that they use for extracting the uh, oil? So that's a very good question, and that's the, at the heart of my reporting. Uh, and what I found is that a good portion of the water that oil companies use for steam flooding is coming from the State Water Project. The State Water Project administers the California Aqueduct, which is this vast concrete river of water that brings water from the Sacramento, San Joaquin, Bay Delta, outside of San Francisco, down all the way to Los Angeles. So this is not only bringing water to irrigate farms in the Central Valley, but also bringing drinking water to Los Angeles, Bakersfield, and the other uh, large municipalities in the Central Valley. So I thought, well, could it be possible that, that some of this water is coming through the state water project? And I called Kern County Water Agency one of the big water distributors in the state, in fact, in the world. They are in command of about a million acre feet of water. I called the water district that serves the main part of the oil fields. It's the West Kern Water District. And asked the director, J.D. Bramlett, are the oil companies taking water from the state water project through the West Kern Water District to do steam flooding? And he told me, yeah, they get most of it. And I said, well, when you say most of it, uh, how much? And he said about 83% of the West Kern Water District's water, which is about 31,000 acre feet. So in this parched, dry region, about 83% of the water being delivered through the California Aqueduct, through one water district alone, is being given to oil companies for steam flooding operations. So they're using clean drinking water to extract oil from tar sands. They are, yeah. One of the hiccups of steam flooding, if you will, is that they can't just use any water to do it. It's sort of like your coffee maker. If you use dirty water in your coffee maker, you're going to get stuff precipitating out onto the heating elements of your coffee maker. So the oil companies need a clean, a fresh source of water. One shocking thing that I found in, in my research is that back in 1985, when oil was at its peak in California, in Kern County, it took about four and a half barrels of water to generate one barrel of oil. Okay, four and a half barrels of fresh water to generate one barrel of oil. Well, that oil field is, is in decline now. Today, it takes close to eight barrels of water to generate one barrel of, of heavy oil. It's enough water to supply 200,000 households or about 500,000 people for a year. From reading your article, this is an area um, where the aqueduct carrying clean drinking water goes right past towns that don't have clean drinking water. Exactly. There are dozens of small towns within sight of the aqueduct, as you say, that don't have access to clean drinking water. So that water flows right past to the oil fields, and these towns are forced to to deal with well water that they have, which in a lot of cases is contaminated with agricultural pollutants and, and other natural pollutants. Yeah, it's um, a landscape that's defined by drought. It's a it's a semi-arid desert. I mean, it's this is a, an area where, like you say, every drop uh, of water counts. You know, it's really disturbing to read and think that our addiction to oil or our need for oil is so great that we d- would use water water that's scarce to extract oil from the ground. Yeah, it's, sho- it's, it's shocking. There's no other way to put it. And when you're driving in the area, uh, when, you're, when you're walking around in these dry hillsides, it really comes into focus when you realize that 
all of those miles worth of silver pipes are carrying a vast amount of superheated steam uh, to get this oil up out of the ground. Well, Jeremy Miller, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jeremy Miller's report, The Colonization of Kern County, A Story of Oil and Water, appears in the latest edition of Orion Magazine. Just ahead. Okay, all together now. 8,000 bottles of trash on the wall, 8,000 bottles of trash. Stay in tune to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. There are ships in bottles. Now there are schools out of bottles. In Granados, Guatemala, kids are learning the three R's, reading, writing, and recycling. They've learned how to turn plastic bottles into walls for their schools. Laura Kuttner from Portland, Oregon, helped make it happen. She recently returned from Granados in central Guatemala, where she served in the Peace Corps. When I first arrived, I was working in the mornings with this elementary school, and there was this metal frame that was just sitting there. And the principal asked me, she said, can you help us find funding to finish these two classrooms? This frame was built for two extra classrooms. And I said, well, absolutely. And about that same time, I had heard about the work of a fellow volunteer. Basically, they turn plastic bottles and inorganic trash into building blocks. It was almost an accident. I was hanging out at recess with some of my students, and I was drinking a Coca-Cola. And it was in a 600 milliliter bottle. And I realized that the bottle was the exact width of the metal frame that was sitting there. And so I, you know, a little light bulb went off in my head and I thought, well, maybe we could apply this construction technique of building out of bottles with this metal frame and perhaps it will be, you know, a more cost efficient way of finishing these classrooms. Are these no deposit, no return bottles or are these bottles that you have a deposit and you get money for? Well, there's no recycling system, unfortunately, in this part of the country. Guatemala definitely, as well as, you know, many countries around the world, has, you know, issues with waste management. There did exist the mentality of not being necessarily aware of how long it takes trash to decompose. And so a lot of times the plastic bottles and trash was just thrown on the ground and it was just sitting there. How many bottles did you have to collect? We calculated that we need to collect 6,000 bottles, but we end up using over 8,000. Ooh, that's a lot of bottles. Yes, lots of bottles. Where'd you get them from? Um, we went to all of the local schools asking for their collaboration. So essentially, every student collected and stuffed at least five bottles. And these have to be stuffed to the max. They are called eco-bricks. And we walked around with the students, and we literally cleaned the entire town. We picked up so much trash, we had to go to neighboring suburbs to find more trash. How much trash does this equate to? 
Each bottle, and it varies a lot based on, you know, what kind of inorganic trash. All the trash has to be organic. We had all of the local stores donate all of their plastic trash. You can't use any paper or cardboard because that decomposes quickly. You know, on average, a bottle weighs about a pound. So if you, you know, 8,000 pounds just for one school. So you picked up the bottles, you picked up the trash, you stuffed the trash into the bottles and then built a wall. We built four walls. It's a very simple process. Essentially, you have your frame and you start on one side of the frame. You have to lay out either, you know, you staple chicken wire to one side or what we did because we used metal was we tied with metal wire the chicken wire to one side first and made it really, really tight. And then you start on the inside and you are stacking the bottles um, against the first layer of chicken wire um, vertically and then horizontally, and then you're slowly closing it over with another layer of chicken wire and then tying both layers of chicken wire together. So you kind of encage the bottles. And then you put three layers of cement on both sides. After that, you can't even tell that it's built out of bottles. It looks like it was built out of cement block. Guatemala is a very active earthquake area. Can these withstand earthquakes? Absolutely. Because of the chicken wire and the way that it's built, it's actually a little more flexible in earthquake territory than cement block. So what's the potential for this kind of method in other parts of the world? This has huge potential. Since our project has been completed, um, I have received email inquiries and questions from all over the world, from Haiti, from the Philippines, from Africa, people that are working and want to turn trash into building blocks. But we always say that these projects, the the actual structure, that's just one aspect of it. The real long-term goal of these projects is the educational aspect to it, because this is not a long-term solution to trash management in any way, but just the educational aspect and, and learning how long it takes trash to decompose and what you can do with trash and how much we produce. We produce enough trash to build buildings with it and also bringing communities together, it's, in every sense of the word, a win-win. Well, Laura, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Laura Kuttner recently returned from Granados, Guatemala, where she served in the Peace Corps. Coming up, oceanography and poetry. I think I shall never see a poem lovely as the sea. But first, this note on emerging science from Wynne Tucker. Another challenge for the green hornet. Harness the awesome power of the sun. A new kind of green hornet has caught the attention of scientists at Tel Aviv University. The oriental hornet can be found from the Middle East to India, and it has the ability to convert sunlight into energy. Unlike other flying insects, this hornet is most active during the middle of the day, when the sun shines the brightest. Scientists discovered that its body acts as a solar panel. The exoskeleton of the oriental hornet is brown with a ring of yellow around its abdomen. The brown section of the exoskeleton is covered with tiny grooves that trap light. The yellow ring gets its color from a pigment called xanthopterin, which converts the sunlight into energy. 
the hornet uses this energy to build its nest. Researchers hope to apply the structure of the hornet's exoskeleton to solar panels. If this does lead to a more cost-effective solar panel, the Oriental Hornet could take the sting away from the high prices of solar technology. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Win Tucker. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is loe.org. That's loe.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. The language of the scientist is factual. The words of the poet, metaphorical. But let's not be so strictly categorical, for rhyme and reason fused can be formidable. Oceanographer John Delaney waxes scientific and poetic at the University of Washington. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro has his chapter and verse. Last year at a workshop for the Ocean Observatories Initiative in Baltimore, John Delaney huddled with Susumu Honjo during an evening reception. Honjo is an oceanographer at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He and Delaney were discussing a haiku written by Matsuo Basho, a 17th century Japanese poet. But let's go with it, okay? Allow me. Allow me. Okay, there are the two things, intonation... Which is go up and down very slightly. This is one of Delaney's favorite haikus. And also, important thing is there is a pause. If you go without the pause, it doesn't mean too much. If you leave the pause too long, it looks like you are hesitating. And <laughs> you generally learn it pausing by doing it. By doing it. Yes, okay. Okay, araumiya, Arayumiya, Sado ni Amanokawa. Good, perfect. Oh, excellent. The haiku, it means turbulent the sea, stretching across to Sado Island, the Milky Way. For us, for many people, that really symbolizes not only the earth, not only the water, not only the dark sky, but it's the whole universe. And another way of thinking about it, Turbulent the sea means the ocean is very disturbed. Big waves breaking on the beach. And yet, referring to the Milky Way stretching across to Sada, it's quite clear that the clouds have passed away. So there's no storm at the moment. And yet the sea has a memory and it's still turbulent. And so in, in 17 syllables in Japanese, Basho captured the absolute essence of the moment. For Delaney, the ocean is both a source of intellectual curiosity and emotional possibility. Science speaks to the intellect, he says, whereas poetry speaks to both the intellect and the emotion. Michael Collier is a professor of English and creative writing at the University of Maryland College Park. He's a poet, too, and back in 1991, Delaney invited Collier to join him aboard the Atlantis II on one of his research cruises. John just had this sense that uh, having a poet on board would bring another kind of element, a different kind of 
of way of looking at the world. Collier's time aboard inspired him to write two poems later, one called Fathom and League and the other Pax Geologica. He also read his poetry during the cruise, and it was the beginning of a tradition. On every research cruise since, one night has been devoted to poetry. Scientists, students, and crew gather in the library to read aloud their own poetry or the poems of others. It's become one of the best attended and most eagerly anticipated events of every cruise. Naturally, there's also a lot of science happening on board these cruises. For almost two decades, Delaney's been pushing for a new kind of ocean science, a way of being there in the volume of the ocean without actually being there. It involves lighting up the ocean with an extensive network of sensors and semi-autonomous robots that can be reprogrammed from shore via high-speed optical networks. This Ocean Observatory Initiative will have thousands of sensors distributed through the volume of the ocean that will ever be on guard. I mean, 24-7, 365 for decades. We'll be measuring the ocean from the inside out all the time. This vision, it received funding from the National Science Foundation in September 2009, and it's only three years away from becoming a reality, where these sensors monitor the physics, chemistry, and biology of the ocean and seafloor in many locations across the world. Humans will be intimately involved and tied to the oceans on a routine, regular basis in in ways that we can't even imagine right now. We will have the capacity to detect and track major events like, like a gigantic storm or a, an erupting volcano or a migrating blue whales or fish stock migration patterns or, for that matter, it could easily be uh, big earthquakes and the tsunamis that generate. The more we know, the more wisely we can use and protect ourselves from the ocean. This vision, it represents a democratization of science, since these observatories will relay their data about the world's ocean to anyone with an internet connection, to scientists and, for that matter, poets too. On that research cruise almost 20 years ago, poet Michael Collier came to realize the connections between science and poetry. One of the big connections is just experimenting. Uh, Poetry is experimenting with language. Science is experimenting with... um, you know, concepts. And then also, they're both very powerful forms of human inquiry. And they both lead to different kinds of truth. Delaney shares his love of poetry with other scientists, too. Take Margaret Linen, the associate provost at Florida Atlantic University. She met Delaney on a research cruise back in the early 80s, and they've stayed in touch ever since. Whenever he is in town, uh, I've often got something new that I I have to read to him. For example. This is a poem by Ted Couser, who won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, poetry. This poem is called A Jar of Buttons. This is a core sample from the floor of the Sea of Mending, a cylinder packed with shells that over many years sank through fathoms of shirts, pearl buttons, blue buttons, and settled together beneath waves of perseverance, an ocean upon which generations of women set forth under the sails of gingham curtains and, seated side by side on decks sometimes salted by tears, made small but important repairs.
For John Delaney, the ocean is full of mystery, and ocean observatories are a powerful way of weaving together the scientific and aesthetic threads that make up the fabric of our global ocean, and then streaming it all back to shore for everyone to absorb, read, pour over, and find meaning, whatever their specific focus may be. It gives us all the opportunity to to experiment, to innovate, to, to develop uh, novel approaches to uh, to studying the global ocean which is really our life support system on the planet it's nothing more and nothing less it's the complexity that is going to be the the, the biggest nut for us to crack is and it's not going to yield easily to uh, to casual effort it's going to be a, a a major major challenge for us to get there for living on earth i'm ari daniel shapiro Our story about the poetry of the sea comes to us courtesy of Ocean Gazing Podcast. It's produced by the Centers for Ocean Sciences Education Excellence with support from the National Science Foundation. For more information on ocean gazing, take a gander at our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, a nightmare scenario. A severe drought in China sends wheat prices soaring and buyers trying to gobble up the U.S. crop. Now you can say, well, if they drive up our food prices too much, we'll restrict exports. But China's our banker. They're holding $900 billion of U.S. Treasury securities. Global food insecurity, a shortage of rain, and a shortage of grain next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the company of wild bison. Antelope Island State Park in Utah is home to 600 American buffalo. They're usually free to roam, but on this day they were in corrals after the annual roundup to check on their health. Under skies we hope were not cloudy, producer Jeff Rice was able to get up close to these woolly bullies. He recorded their grumblings for the University of Utah Marriott Library, westernsoundscape.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike, Shreese Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Sean Falk and Wynn Tucker. Jeff Turtner is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the LOE Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.